<clears throat> anyone here? If you have a Bible, uh, or a phone, why don't you open up to Second um, Corinthians chapter 5. We won't be there just yet, but we will be there uh, a bit later on. Uh, should be there a little bit. I think oh, that if you don't have a phone or whatever, the slides will be behind me. It's also the chat room that can help you out. Um, just to help orientate you, if you've been... If you've been coming all four weeks, you'll know sort of where we are. If you've missed a couple or you've here for the first time, we are in a series that are uh, that's working through four uh, massive uh, commitments that we have here at Apostles to gather, to grow, to give, and to go. This is a go week, and every uh, week we've been slotting in and being with uh, one or two of these um, Bs that you see on this circle on this side. But these are. Uh, <coughs> critical areas that we want to be formed into as pastors. We want to be these kinds of people that God's looking at multiplying disciples. And um, this is our last week. We're looking at be compassionate and be uh, evangelistic. By summary, what do I mean by that? I wrote it down. <clears throat> this is what we mean. We want to express our love and worship of God by loving the world and serving it in God's purposes in it. That's what we're about, that's all we want to do, that's what I think is the faithful call of anyone who calls himself a, a Jesus follower. Uh, I've got a few things that I want to deal with by way of sort of introduction and to orientate us before we dive into um, a more meaningful look at, at evangelism and compassion. Um, the first is to say this, that I think the primary way in which you serve the world is through your vocation. Um, I think some some churches or Christians seem they can overemphasize what you do for the Lord at church. Like you serve the Lord at church. So you're involved in kids' ministry, you play on a band, whatever, like that's where you serve the Lord. What you do during the week, that's not really serving the Lord. Like that's just accounting or teaching or the meds thing or looking after your kids or whatever it is. Like that's not real, where the real action is. And I think it's the exact opposite. I think that's where the real action is. And we get to be a part of a church and serve the Lord with the gifts that He's given us, and um, this is this is really important because I think a lot of people struggle with it. Um, there was a guy who was part of our church; uh, they moved overseas, and he was a pilot. And I remember having this conversation with him again and again and again, and he struggled. And you know, pilots they have such weird schedules; they get in and they're not, and then they get in and they're not, and the rhythms are weird, and they're sleeping when everyone's awake, and then they're awake when everyone's sleeping. Lord willing, in the plane, that, that's normally how it works. Um, and, he, and he really struggled because he didn't really get into the life of the church. Like he was away so much, he couldn't really meet with CG. He was away a lot of weekends, and he just he really struggled. He said, I don't, I don't know where I fit in, like how I can serve the Lord. And I said to him, Bud, you know, every time I get on a plane, I pray that the guy flying it is you. Because you're conscientious, you're gifted, you're the best pilot I know. And I said, when you fly that plane, but you are enabling so much stuff. This is the way in which you love and you serve the Lord. You make all these trips happen for people, business connections, family gatherings, people just going on holiday. You're, you're the one who's making all of that happen. Like, you know, safety off the ground, and Lord willing, safety back onto the ground. You know, you've got to pray every time those wings take off. No, the wings take off, the whole plane takes off. You know what I mean? Uh, that's what you've got to be telling yourself. This is how I love and serve the Lord. And, and he still struggled with it because he's become so conditioned that the rest of the stuff that you do has not got God's fingerprints all over it. And I want to put that out there at the start that that's how you spend the majority of the time uh, is unto the Lord. That's what churches, whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord. And so you should do 
capability of interacting. Um, just to make note that the people uh, who God has called you primarily to influence are the people that you work with, the people that you live near, the people who you have fun with, and the people who you are family with. Uh, you will influence other people. But if you're looking for people who say, who has God called me to reach, to love, and to influence, that's, those are the categories of people. And so, eyes wide open, and as I'm talking this morning, those are the people you're praying for. Uh, God will allow us to influence other people, but we don't go past those people and look to make a place. No, those are the people that uh, we're going to lead to faith in Jesus who our lives will influence the ones closest to us. Uh, the, the second thing I want to uh, uh, touch on is um, some some marks of our cultural moment and where, where I feel like we are, and there's two things I want to say about this as they relate to particularly to evangelism. Um, the first is that there is, we're still in the midst of an ongoing tension between evangelism and mercy and justice um, ministries, if you will. And um, everyone is on a spectrum. Everyone of you, uh, all of us, we're on a spectrum somewhere with these things. You'll get some people, and to make the point, you, know, you have to go to the end of the spectrum. you get some people who are like, they just they tell people about Jesus, people. What people need is Jesus. They don't need food, clothing, social initiatives. They need to hear the gospel. They need Jesus. Because one day they're going to stand before him, and that's all they need. So I'm not going to waste all my time you know, feeding the poor or all that kind of jazz. I'm just going to think of Jesus when I was in there. You know? And maybe you know some of those people. Um, they can be hard to get around. Um, the ones who are on the far end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you get the, let's feed the poor, let's clothe, let's house the homeless. And let's not, let's not bother with, that's the way in which we love and serve the world. That's the love of Jesus practically coming out of us. We don't actually have to talk to them about Jesus. We just need to do all of these things that are, that are good things, but it misses the message of Jesus. And you can see already that I'm advocating that it's something more of the middle, where we do both and. Uh, I think the, the love of Christ sends us out into the world with a message that is an articulation of the gospel. And this is important that we don't cloud things here and get things confused. The gospel is a message of good news, of the reconciliation of the world through the person of Jesus Christ and the recreation of the entire cosmos because of what he has done. It's not to be confused with a million other things. Uh, we need to be clear on that, otherwise everything gets, gets muddied. But be, because we believe the gospel, we then go out to love and to serve the poor, to do mercy ministries. But there is a priority, I would say this one. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says evangelism is the most basic and radical ministry possible to a human being. This is true not because the spiritual is more important than the physical, but because the eternal is more important than the temporal. So he's saying it's like the spiritual is not more important than physical, but it, it has a primary, a focus, and a priority because eternal things are weightier than temporal things. I will say this, you're going to stand before Jesus whether you die of starvation or whether you die with a sore stomach. That's more me putting things crudely and Tim Keller more eloquent. But I'm basically saying spiritual things are eternal, physical things are, are temporal. <clears throat> but a true understanding of the gospel should catapult us out from ourselves into the world with both the gospel message and loving and serving. That's the one cultural tension we find ourselves in. The second one is that the faith, uh, faith has been pushed to be a private thing and an individual thing. A private and an individual thing. The Barna, the Barna Company, 
uh, they did a lot of uh, research on Christian friends and stuff a few years ago. They did a, a poll amongst millennial Christians, and they found this. 94% of those polled agreed that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. 94%. They think the best thing that can happen to you is if you come to know Jesus. 40% of them agreed, at least somewhat, that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Can you see a collision there? People thinking, hey, it would be great if you met Jesus, but I'm not going to tell you about him. Somehow you're just going to figure it out on your own. But it's sort of like they agree that it's at least somewhat wrong, 40% or half of the people, to share your faith with somebody with the view, with the hope that they would then adopt that same faith. Daniel Radcliffe was in interviewed. You know him as Harry Potter? Uh, he was interviewed as part of a new series of Gethsemane, and he said this. I'm fully aware that religion is a huge part of a lot of people's lives. Everyone can believe whatever they want, as long as it's not hurting anyone, and as long as you don't think that that gives you the right to tell someone else how they can live their lives. That is distilled the cultural sphere where we are among. It's okay if you believe that the fire spaghetti monster runs the universe. That's fine. It's not hurting anyone. It's not hurting you. That's cool kind of thing. You can believe in unicorns and all that kind of stuff. Whatever runs the universe, as long as you're not hurting anything. As soon as you try and impose your beliefs on me or get me to change my beliefs and sort of come over to your side, there you've now wandered into the no-go area um, culture. Kevin Wax is a, um, a blogger at the Gospel Coalition, and he has written an article on what he calls the fact-values trap. He says, on the one hand, we've got facts, and on the other hand, we've got values. Facts, we can roll out in public, and it's okay. These things are allowed to be aired everywhere, because we all agree on the facts. The values, we need to hide. We need to keep those to ourselves, because those are subjective and personal. And you all have your own values and your value systems. And it's very nice when you bump into somebody, and you meet someone with the same values as you, we're going to be very happy together because it's a very subjective thing and we're all just like that. But the facts, we all agree on the facts and so we can bring those out into the public. And I think, if anything, the last couple of years has made us question, I think, like, what are facts? Um, and I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Um, like, I read the news, but I'm beyond people. Like, every time I read the news, I'm wondering, is this true? Sometimes you read the news and you think, this is not fact. This is, this is an opinion about facts. This is being interpreted to me by somebody. And so whose facts am I reading or believing here? But his point is that there is a fact value split. There's a lot of facts that we can at least debate and sort of agree upon or kick around. But values, just keep those to yourself. Don't come into this world and try and impose your beliefs on people and come and win them over to your view. That's just, that's just like a no-go area. And some of you have experienced this. Some of you have friendships, relationships, colleagues, family members, where you've had conversations around faith-based issues, and it's gone sideways or south, and now there's a whole um, box of kind of conversation and faith, and that gets put in there. It's like, we've done that. We've had that. We know where we stand. We don't, we don't bring that box out. It's like, you know, your family name, so you shouldn't talk about faith or politics and these kind of things because they're political. It's the same thing in my family. Uh, those things... You invoke um, stuff, you know, and so sometimes because that happens in the public space, there's a lot of pressure to make faith a private thing. It's okay, you can believe whatever you want, you just believe it yourself. You don't bring that all out, that kind of thing. We all are sufficient and able to fill our jobs out. Thank you very much. And it's into that, it's into that culture and climate 
that safety information kept cloud speaks with additional power and force and weight. I think this can mislead it together. Where we let them skip over and then converge to repent. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and our hope is also plain to your consciences. Verse 13. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from the world, Jesus Christ. Even if you have known Christ from the world, Jesus Christ, yet now you no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Salvation. There are four things that I want us to see. There's many more, but there's four for today that I want us to see as it pertains to evangelism in the pulpit. The first one is that evangelism begins with the fear of the Lord. Evangelism begins with the fear of the Lord. Have a look in verse 11 where it says, Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. We try to persuade people because we know the fear of the Lord. What does that, what does that mean? The fear of the Lord is a biblical term. It's an understanding that you have come to understand and to know to some degree who God is. That you see correctly in the light of, okay, he is God and, and I'm not. And there's a, there's a problem, there's a difficulty, you're separated, you're unreconciled, and you've come to realize you need reconciling with God, and that happens in and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you you come and it's another word for this fear of the Lord is reverential awe. You stand amazed by who God is. It's not like, yeah, you just touch on the fire flacker. And the fear of the Lord is living in a reverential awe of who he is and what he has done. And uh, and Paul says the fear of the Lord is the thing that makes us want to share with others. It's not like we feel guilt-ridden that, hey, you should share your faith with others, go, 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 be a better Christian, evangelize the Lord. You don't want to do that, and you will not do that, unless you live with this reverential awe. I don't deserve to know you, God. I don't deserve to be in a relationship with you. I call the son or daughter to be filled with the Spirit. I don't deserve it. 
and ask when you open my eyes a bit to see and you keep knowing just more of who you are. When you live there in reverential awe, the fear of the Lord, it causes us to want to then persuade people. Evangelism begins with the fear of the Lord. Second, is that evangelism is fueled by the love of God. It's fueled by the love of God. Have a look in verse 14. It says, for it is for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. It's very important to get these words clear. It's not our love for Christ that compels us. Okay? It's not how it works. It's not, I love, I love you, Jesus, and so I'm going to go and tell everyone about you. No. It's this. The love of God compels us. It's God's love for you that compels you. It's God's love for others who have yet to meet him. That's what compels you. You come to understand. This is what, this is what it means to be a believer in Jesus. You have come to understand that the Father has set his affection on you. That he loves you. In spite of yourself, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And you are secure in his love forever. He loves you. And he loves others. You look at your neighbors. You look at your family. You look at your colleagues. You realize God loves them. In the same way that he loves me, but they don't know it yet. And so the love of God that I experienced and have experienced and will continue to experience compels me to go to those who God also loves, to share with them and to persuade and to try to convince them God loves you. God has set his affection on you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be reconciled. You can be motivated by a lot of other things in evangelism. It is very, very easy uh, when it comes to evangelism, to guilt Christians into feeling you should share your faith with them. I grew up uh, hearing this again and again. Uh, it's easy. I'll do it now quickly as a pastor. Because I'm showing you what you shouldn't do. How many of you have shared your faith with somebody recently? Now you're also terrible because you haven't. And then I can just explain to you, you're a bad Christian, do more of that, you know, get your act together, God loves you more, and blah, 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 blah. blah. And then you leave motivated by what? Yeah, guilt. Guilt is short days. It doesn't get you far or very quickly anyway. And then it runs out of steam. Guilt is not a motivator for evangelism. The love of God that God has for you and for others, that motivates evangelism. Because you're trying to just share the love story. God has loved you. God does love you. You can talk about the love of God. You're not talking about adherence to rules and hoops you need to jump through and all this stuff. You're sharing a love story that God has set his affection on you and changed your life. You've done things for them, but they haven't realized it yet. And that motivates us not almost to other stuff, pride, duty, uh, fear of God, and all that stuff. It's because the love of Christ compels us. The third thing is that evangelism relies on the power of the gospel. Evangelism relies on the power of the gospel. Have a look at verse 18 with me where it says, For it says, Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself, through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. If you've been coming to Parkers for a while, you probably heard this going on about a lot. If you're new or you're visiting, this may be new to you. You may not have even heard this at a different church. I'll tell you this. We believe this with all our strength here. 
that a God reconciled you to him. You did not sign up for reconciliation. You didn't put your hand up and say, God, I want to get right with you. It says there that in Christ, that God has reconciled us to himself. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world. In terms of who's been reconciling, God has been reconciling. Here's the, the truth of the scriptures is that we were dead in our sin. You were spiritual, you were a spiritual corpse that needed a resurrection. Corpses don't sign up for a resurrection. They get resurrected. That's what happened to you. You didn't sign up for it. You didn't choose God. God chose you. He chose you. And he resurrected you. He affected a resurrection against your will. <laughs> if it was up to you, you wouldn't have picked him. In a million years, you would never have picked God. He chose you because he loves you. And he poured out mercy on you. And he made you alive in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, that's what happened to you. God does the reconciling. That's why the point is that the power is in the gospel. God does the reconciling. How many of you have shared with somebody again and again and again and again? And there's nothing happening. And you've given up on him or you're close to giving up. Guys, it's not up to you. It's not up to the power of your words, the persuasiveness of your presentation, the persistence of your prayers. It's not up to you, man. That's um, unplanned, spontaneous. Um, I'm running out of batteries and energy now. It's not up to you how sensitive you get, even how much you think. God does the reconciling. God does the resurrection. We get, we get to speak, we get to pray, we do get to share, but God does all the heavy lifting. And that's amazing to blow our mind and give us a massive confidence that God, you are the reconciler, you are the life giver, you are the resurrected. Would you do that again in a people where we love to see this happen? Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, verse 16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For if the gospel is the power of God for salvation, Everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek to the Gentile. The gospel is the power. I want to briefly pause here and just say, you might be here this morning hearing all of this, and, and, and you may not be reconciled today. And I, I, it would be wrong of me to just keep pushing through this and you know, talk about evangelism, compassion, without addressing this and addressing you and saying, maybe your greatest need today is to be reconciled with God. Because Paul says in verse 20, in the same way, he's saying, we plead on Christ's behalf. We plead on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. He says at the, the start of chapter 6, he says, today is the day of salvation. God brings and, and reconciles people to himself in all kinds of strange ways. And if you feel like God has been working in your life, you wouldn't consider yourself a believer in Jesus yet, but God is doing stuff in your life. You feel drawn to him. You have questions. There's stuff going on. I want to encourage you. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Not, not Tuesday, not when you go to the Christian school out, not whatever. Today, if you feel God is drawing you to himself, today is the day that you respond. And you say, God, I'm crossing the line of faith. All my questions, all my doubts, all my baggage. And it's not just to be on the team. I don't know where this is going to go. But you step over that line and you place faith in Jesus and you're reconciled. God. The fourth thing is that evangelism understands our partnership with God. Evangelism understands our partnership with God. Have a look at verse 20. It says, therefore, 
we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal. That, that should blow your mind. That God, through the eternal God of the universe, speaks through you. He makes an appeal to others through you. Fumbled, muddled, incomplete, with a life that doesn't necessarily match up to the message that you're sharing, God chooses to make his appeal through you. God has wired it this way, that, that I could give a conversation during the four events of the normative day. We could people will speak, they will share the gospel with others, and others will hear that and come to believe. We have to do this through them. It says at the beginning, have a look at chapter 6, verse 1. And it says, working together with him then. Working together, you are co-working with God. That, that should melt your head, that God has chosen to bring us along as co-workers, that we get to somehow play a part with him in seeing people come to faith. I, I wonder if in eternity we're going to have a chance to sit down with Jesus and talk about the people that we helped bring to faith. When we were there in action, when we were the ones sharing, and they were coming and they were placing faith in Jesus. And Jesus is like, well, let, me, let me fill you in a bit more. And, and, and he'll open up a book, an iPad, I don't know. He'll open up something and he'll share, so now let me fill you in on all the stuff that I was doing. And how I engineered every part of this person's life. And I allowed them to go through circumstances that made them ready to share that. And I brought this person into life. And this message and this message and this message and this relationship. And I moved into this city. Whatever. So that when you went through, sat down with them and you spoke, their heart was ready to receive. You reap what you didn't even sow. Now, Jesus is always busy in a million ways that we are oblivious to. And we get to be co-workers with him. I, I often reflect on how I came to faith and just marvel at it. I, I, was, I was loved into faith in Jesus. I was a difficult dude growing up. I'm still a bit God slowly working with me. I was more difficult, as you can imagine, when I was 17. I was an angry, obnoxious, proud, belligerent, and bonehead, you know? And I had gone through so much grief in my family. And then my stepdad died when I was 16. That was the tipping point for me. And I, I, I went and I joined a, a, a youth group. And one of my youth leaders was here at the 8 o'clock service. I don't know if she knows how instrumental she was in me coming to faith. But those youth leaders loved me and created an environment where I felt, I felt loved, even though I was sick of pain at that time. And they lovingly just loved me, and they shared Jesus with me. People were praying for me. I didn't know about it. And then three Sunday nights in a row, an old Baptist pastor called Les Mackey, who was just one of the most wonderful people that he preached the gospel three Sundays. If you ever heard Rex Mackey preach, you wonder why it took me three Sundays to um, just, you know, relent. I knew on that first Sunday I needed to make my life right with God, but they just sent me to God. God was too proud to do anything about it. Second Sunday, exactly the same thing. By the third Sunday, God had worn my, worn down my stupid defenses. And I went home and I wept. I was reconciled to God. And I think it's like a movie in my mind. I remember it so clearly. And I was a different person when I went to school on a Monday morning. God reconciled me to himself. But there was a whole team of people who loved me into relationship with Jesus. 
trust. You don't know what part you play in a team. You don't know what bit you get to play a part on the team with God and seeing others come to faith in Him. What about compassion? Let's look at that briefly to make notes. Have a look at 1 John. A couple of verses that really speak to us and shape us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, John says this, This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. Can we know it? He laid down his life for us. And we should also lay down our lives for our, for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. John is saying there, compassion is a marker that God's love lives in you, that God himself lives in you. And if you have the world's good and you see a brother or sister that's in need, and he says he withholds compassion, your heart is hardened, so you both don't extend compassion and you hold things away from him. He says, how can the love of God live in you? If you claim to be a believer in Jesus, this is what happens to you, is your heart starts to soften. And I think the Bible makes a compelling case that the first people that we should love and serve are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think there's a primacy because like we meet the needs of the, of the church family before we meet the needs of the rest of the world. I think we do both. It's not either or, but there is a primacy. It's, just, it's, a, it's a brother and sister. Uh, and the don't withhold compassion from them. How can God's love live in you if you live like that? In James chapter 2, verse 14, James puts it this way. What good is it, our brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by James makes a point to us. It doesn't matter what you say. If your faith doesn't have accompanying works, it's dead. It's dead. There's nothing in it. It doesn't help anyone who is starving uh, or needing to say, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. They don't need a checkbook. He says, but you don't give them what the body needs. Um, people in poverty don't need checkbooks. They need our compassion and our love and our help. I want to say that a bit on this because South Africa is a unique challenge on this. There are ways in which our helping can hurt. There are ways in which our helping can hurt. It can further entrench um, power, you know, discrepancies and power struggles and can further entrench systemic poverty. We need to be very wise and clear in how we help the poor. And another thing that we, you know, it, it won't just escape to notice, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, we live in the most unequal society in the world. And so it can become overwhelming to those who have to live in this country because there are needs everywhere. You can't drive from here, you can't drive five states, but everywhere, but there's people who have needs. And just reading news, just live in this country, you'll be overwhelmed with needs. You know what happens when you get overwhelmed with needs? You withhold compassion. As a protection mechanism to protect yourself, you, you harden your heart. You pull up to the robot and you feel nothing. Again and again, we just harden our hearts I'm not saying that we should do everything. We can't do everything. We can't meet 
every need. In contact with Tahiti, literally, and you see everyone that you see who has needs, you just get there because you will end up with nothing in this country. But because you can't do everything, does that mean we should do nothing? No, I can't ask questions. We need to be wise and stress and stress and those sacrificial as those who have ability to lead us in ways in which we can genuinely help people at cost to ourselves. Not because we earn brownie points with you, but because we're motivated with compassion. The love of God lives in us and sends us out in those nations to love people and to serve and to meet their needs. And sometimes we won't just do material needs. Sometimes it will be an other needs, needs of friendship and relationship and just being seen. Just being seen. Those who have are experts in making the poor disappear. And I think it's a dehumanizing thing. But we need to repent of and make eye contact. It's uncertain. I understand. It's uncertain. I walk my dog on the street. There's a whole bunch of homeless guys there. Every now and then they come to catch me. Those ones who speak to the doggies are stuffy. Everyone thinks he's going to follow them. And some of these guys come and they'll ask me for a couple of dollars, but I don't have any money and kind of thing. But I'm willing to talk to them and engage with people. Treating people as human beings is, is, a, is, a, is a fundamental thing of what it means to be a cross bearer. You make contact and you love people, you look at them. You may not be able to solve all their problems, but if you can love people just by listening and caring and being attentive, we have a steady stream of guys who come every week, every day, through the church. We could tell them, look, now we're busy over there in town. We're wanting some of stories and lies. But you can't live like that. You have to be wise, but you have to be loving. And the core of the scriptures is to show us to compassion. Some of you are weary from compassion. You have compassion fatigue. Some of you have evangelism fatigue. You have tried to share your faith. It's gone nowhere. You've prayed for people. You're discouraged. Some of you are set towards longing to see people come to faith in Jesus and actually push people further away and you're bewildered and you've given up both praying and sharing. I want to share with you an encouraging story. This was sent to me a couple of weeks ago and it had such a fundamental effect on my life and I want to share it in you. I want to share this story with you as we close. It's the story of couple called David and Sadia Flood. They were um, missionaries who left Sweden in 1921 with their two-year-old, and they went to um, Congo, uh, which is now Belgium, Congo, which is now Zaire. Uh, they went there together with another Swedish couple called the Ericsons, and they prayed and fasted and thought about it, and they felt God leading them, not to a major city, but to a, a far-flung village called Indulero. In the northern part of the, of the country, they went there. The, the chief of that village said to them, look, you're not welcome here. You're welcome to stay a mile up the road, but if you're not allowed to have contact, you don't want to have anything to do with you. Get lost. And so they moved a mile up the road. They built their own mud hut there with the chief standing in contact, except for one young man who would go twice a week and send another young boy up to sell them chickens and eggs. And that was the only contact that they had with anyone from that village. Despite all their praying, the chief didn't change his mind. So Sadia Flood, the mom, decided, okay, well, you're, if this is the only person from this area that we're going to have contact with, we're going to pray and seek to lead this young boy to Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. He became a believer in Jesus. Not long after that, um, Sadia Flood became pregnant. Uh, the Ericsons, who were a couple with them, had, had malaria again and again and again. They were tough out. They were like, this is too tough. We can't do this anymore. And they left. And they went back to the main mission station. And the floods carried on. And so the flood uh, got hammered by malaria a couple of times in her pregnancy. Uh, she gave birth. Her daughter 
Something inside David said, it's Christmas. He buried his wife quickly in a shallow grave, took his other, took both his kids down to the main mission station, handed over his new daughter, Rena, to the Eric team, and said to them, I'm leaving, I'm done, God has ruined my life. And he left Congo and went back to Sweden, ran away from God's call on his life, and did the Ericsons took in Aina. Eight months later, they contracted some weird disease, and both of them passed away within days of each other. Aina was then passed over to an American family, a uh, missionary family, who then, a couple of years later, moved to the U.S. They thought they could return to Africa, but they were worried what would happen with her. They renamed her Aggie, and so they decided to settle in South Dakota. She grew up in South Dakota, went to school, went to Bible college, and met and married a wonderful guy. They became to her post box and she pulls out a, a magazine. It's a, it's a Swedish missionary magazine. She can't read it, she doesn't understand, but she's flipping through it, she's interested. And she sees a picture of a grave with a white cross and on the cross is the name Severe Flood. And the whole story arises. She says she doesn't understand. So she rushes to the university because she knows somebody there will be able to explain to her what's there. And she gets there, it's a little translation, she says, oh, this is the story, this is what it's saying there. And it's a story of saying, talking about this young boy who got led to Jesus, who grew up, and when he was old enough, he convinced the chief to let him build a school there. He wanted to educate all the kids of that village. And he, in turn, led all of those children to Jesus. They led their parents to the Lord, and amongst them was the chief. 600, the story says 600 people in that village became believers in Jesus because of what happened with that boy. Um, Eddie's mom has just flown uh, for their 25th uh, wedding anniversary, the Bible College gave them a trip to Sweden. She decided to go and find her father to meet her, um, her step-siblings, and they decided to go back to Sweden. They got remarried, they had four other kids, and had thrown his life away. He drunk himself, he became a full-on alcoholic, and had a stroke, and was in a bad, bad place. And he had told his kids, never ever mention the name of God around me. That's what I think, but you never ever mention his name because he took everything from me. And the siblings warned Aggie about this when they were meeting. She said, I need to go and, I need to go and meet him and listen to him. And uh, she writes the story so beautifully. Uh, she goes to one afternoon there and a very emotional reunion. He's now 73 and sick and almost and, and dying. Uh, and she apologizes. She says, yeah, I, 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 never, I never meant to leave you. I didn't want to do that. She says, don't worry, God took care of me. He smiles into a flick of rage. He says, you never ever mentioned and God ruined my life because he took everything from me. From me. She says to this, she says, no, no, let me fill you in on some of what you haven't heard about. And she says, God didn't ruin your life. And, and God didn't turn his back. God didn't turn his back on you. This is what happened. That boy, he, that boy that mom looked for, he grew up. And there's 600 believers now in that village because of the seeds that you planted and the sacrifice that you made. And this recounting of the story caused David Flood to snap again. And by that afternoon, he had been reconciled to the God that he had walked away from for a decade. A few weeks later, he died. He went to glory, a reconciled man with the God who he gave his life to, but then had rejected. A few years later, 
and he was in London at a mission conference and all these young guys got up to share about the progress of the church in Zaire. He mentioned there are 110,000 baptized believers who are planting churches and the church is going crazy while God is doing it. He went to Martha's and said, I don't know if you ever heard of these names, but I wonder if you know if you've heard of David and Sabir Fudd. Because I know exactly who you're talking about. Sabir Fudd led me to Jesus. I was a young boy who used to come and tell your family chickens at home. And they had their very emotional reunion. He invited her to Zaire for me to come and see what was happening in our country. Because your mother is a hero in our nation. Weeks later, they went to Zaire. Um, Amy got to kneel at her mom's grave and pray together with a whole bunch of believers who become believers because of what has happened there. And later on, they had a church service there. And this is what the pastor wrote. John 12, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Followed up with Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. I mention this for your encouragement because if you've given up, if you've given up, we don't know what God is doing. David Fudd walked away from God because he didn't know what God would do, what, what the power of one single seed is like. We're called to plant seeds, not to fill soil. We're called to plant seeds, not God does the growing, God does the reconciling, God does all the heavy lifting, but he's called us to be planters of seeds and to lay down our lives for him. I, I neglected to mention it, but the Pastor Powell mentioned it here. I made it recorded. I was praying this week and he deeply moved as I was praying and pleading with God that he would do many things in us in our landscape, but particularly this. God would put his hand on, on some of the people in our church and burden them, burden them, break their hearts in the nations of the world where the seeds haven't been planted yet, or where the harvest hasn't been ready yet, and that we would go. And it would be our great privilege and delight as a church to send some of you to the nations of the world. Not even necessarily to live as full time missionaries, but to work, to use your vocations, but to go. With that burden, if you're planting seeds or you're harvesting the, in joy what others have sown in tears, that God would do that. It, would be, it wouldn't be a work that we found in ourselves, but that God would rest us and send us. As we, as we close this morning, I want to encourage you this morning again to pray, to revive hope in your own heart again, that somebody who you've given up on, that they're not too far. No one's too far from God. No one is beyond His arms that is reaching to save. And it may look like it's going nowhere. It may be the most discouraging thing, but I want to encourage us to pray again, to keep knocking, to keep pleading, and to keep speaking. And then we trust the results. We leave the results up to God. But we pray, we, we pray, we plead, we persevere, we go. And we trust that God would have compassion on others like He has had compassion on us. Let's pray together. Father, for those that may not know you, you said this morning, those who are 
trundling away towards you. As Christians, it senses something is happening in our lives. You are doing something in us and awakening them to the need to the reality of who you are. We pray for an outpouring of your mercy in our days. And also that you would give them courage and grace to respond to what you're doing in our lives. That today they would cross that line of faith. That they would realize that they, you are reconciling them to yourself. You're turning things to them now and for all eternity. And for those of us who you have reconciled, we, we want to say again this morning, Father, that we love you. We realize we don't deserve this. We don't deserve to know you, to be loved by you in such extravagant ways. And, and Lord, we worship you. We just say thank you, Father, for resurrecting us. Thank you for reconciling us. You changed everything by who we are and how we live. And we just want to say thank you and acknowledge the grace that's been lavished over our lives. And we come again to you this morning and plead for those who don't know you yet. We haven't experienced the love of God washing over their hearts. And we, we plead with you to have mercy on our family members, on our friends, on our colleagues, on our neighbors, and on others who we'll still meet. Please, Jesus, you're always working. You're out in the hearts of working. We pray you give us eyes to see what you're doing and courage to join you. And I do pray that you, in your kindness, Father, would lay your hand on the lives of people in our church and call them to be seed sowers in our nation. That they would be willing, willing to be seeds sown in our very, very lives to be seeds that are sown that they bear.